Hey there, welcome back to Instrumental with me, Bria, your host. I'm super excited to bring you today's episode, which is our season one finale. Quick uh, heads up, Instrumental is going to go on a short break, but we will be back with season two in the fall. So yeah, we'll be, we will be back. We're going on a hiatus. I also just wanted to throw out a quick thank you of appreciation to all the listeners that have been with me um, for season one. Um, I've gotten a lot of encouragement. I really enjoy making this podcast. So thank you for showing up and listening. Of course, keep sharing the last 10 episodes with others who you think might enjoy learning a little bit more about music psychology. Um, Sharing is much appreciated. All right, on to today's episode, which is about musical rewards. Sure, we enjoy listening to our favorite music, but what's going on in our brains, uh, specifically with a chemical called dopamine, that makes music a rewarding experience? And how can these musical rewards be harnessed to change how we learn new skills and behaviors? Keep listening to find out more. Eating chocolate, doing cocaine, having sex, making money, listening to your favorite music. What do all of these things have in common? What's your best guess? If you're thinking something along the lines of, they all feel good, then ding, 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 you're on the right track. When we partake in all of these activities, the reward system of our brain is being activated. Our brain's job on a really fundamental level is to keep us as individuals alive long enough to reproduce and pass on our genes to procreate the next generation. With that in mind, it makes sense that the brain has an entire system dedicated to keeping track of our actions and doling out positive, pleasurable feelings when our actions get us a step closer to achieving a goal that we have in mind. Some of those activities I listed are pretty closely related to the goal of staying alive so we can procreate, like, when we're getting intimate, it's an opportunity to pass on our genetic material. Pretty self-explanatory. When we take a bite of chocolate, it tastes so delicious because we're consuming something that's bad for us, but, I mean, bad for us in, like, a long-term sense, but in a short-term sense, it is full of sugar, it's really calorie-dense, which will keep us alive in case of an emergency. Both of these are pretty primal rewards. The reward system also gets activated by things that are a few steps removed from the primary goal of staying alive, but can also benefit us. Secondary rewards are things like money, which can allow us to buy more things that will improve our lives, like more chocolate. Um, And the reward system can also get hijacked, such as in the case of drugs that are abused like cocaine. But for many people, the last activity I listed, listening to music, is the most mysterious thing on the list that activates the brain's reward system. It's not obvious how music keeps us alive on a fundamental level. And even if you really love music, it's not like listening to music is addictive to the same extent that cocaine can be. So what is it about music that makes our brains interpret it as a reward? Maybe you've heard people try to explain why music is so powerful or why we like music so much by saying things like, music releases dopamine in the brain the same way chocolate or cocaine does. 
And that's true, but it's also true that there are a lot of other things that can increase dopamine levels in our brains, like walking and meditating, things that don't have the same hedonic, pleasurable connotations that we often have with dopamine in the reward system. This episode is going to dive into how dopamine motivates us to engage in goal-oriented behavior, what that means, how dopamine rewards us when we reach those goals, and also what, if anything, is special about how music activates the reward system. And then I'm going to tie it all back together by sharing how music therapists can harness music's dopamine-releasing power to help clients achieve their own clinical goals. So buckle up, we're just getting into the introduction, but I think this episode's topic is super important and I think it's really interesting. So here we go. First off, we have to learn a little bit more about dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter. And just in case you haven't been in neuroanatomy in a while, a neurotransmitter is a chemical that's released in our brain as a way for neurons to communicate with each other. There are lots of neurotransmitters that get released in our brain, and each of them are associated with different regions of our brain. Um, Each one can have different effects on behavior, depending on the context. Um, So some neurotransmitters that you might have heard of are famous ones like epinephrine or oxytocin or endorphins. But the neurotransmitter that we are focused on today is dopamine. Dopamine can impact several behaviors, but it's often associated with motivation and reward-seeking behavior. The amount of dopamine produced in certain brain areas is also associated with the motivational salience of the thing that we're going after. So basically, if we perceive a goal that we're trying to achieve as really high value, it's really important to us, then more dopamine is released when we achieve it, and it feels like we're getting a bigger neural reward. And dopamine is also released in different phases when we're trying to get something that we want. The first phase is the appetitive phase of reward. It's like our appetite. We know that we want something, we anticipate getting it, we make predictions about what behaviors we need to do to get that thing, and we learn from those predictions all in the pursuit of that goal. It's our brain keeping us apprised of our movements as our arm reaches out towards a chocolate bar. When we reach out our arm in the right direction, we get a little hit of dopamine. Good job. When we predict the grip strength that we need to grab the chocolate, more dopamine. Good job, our brain is saying. When we bend our arm at the right angle and bring the chocolate up to our mouth, dopamine. Good job, you're on the right track. Then the second phase of the reward seeking that that dopamine regulates is the consumatory phase of reward when we're consuming that reward when we've gotten it. That's that feeling of reinforcement, that hedonic feeling of satisfaction when we successfully maneuvered our behavior to get our goal and we finally get to enjoy the taste of that chocolate bar. That all makes sense for enjoying a treat, but how does music tie into dopamine? How does dopamine interact with our brain when we're listening to music? Again, music doesn't obviously seem to have the direct survival payoff that eating chocolate does. But if you look at music from a different perspective on a very fundamental level, music is made up of auditory patterns that unfold over time. There are certain tonal scales that musical melodies and harmonies fall within. Music makes use of predictable timing structures and hierarchies like meter and rhythm. We form expectations for certain styles of music to use certain instruments or have lyrics about certain topics or themes. And all of these musical elements unfold over time, 
moment by moment. In order to evaluate our environment to figure out what behaviors we need to do to reach our goals, our brain is always making predictions about what's coming up next. All this to say, one reason scientists think music is associated with dopamine production is because our brain doles out rewards for all of these expectations and predictions that we make about music and where the music is going. Musical anticipation creates pleasure when our musical predictions are fulfilled, especially when it's like our very favorite song. We know it inside and out, we know exactly what's coming next, and we're going to be right about our predictions every single time. Big dopamine reward. Or even more interesting to me, even if our musical expectations aren't perfect, we can still derive pleasure from them. If we're hearing a song for the very first time, our brain is still trying to predict where the melody's going or how the harmonic progression is going to end. All these little details based on what we've heard before and the musical culture that we were raised in. And even if we make an incorrect musical prediction, we can still get a musical reward. I can't believe I'm using this musical example, but take the song song by Cisco. Pay attention especially to the harmonies in the background as the music builds up in intensity. There, right there, did you hear that? That key change isn't typical in pop music, so your ear probably wasn't expecting to hear the whole song modulate up. But it works. It still sounds right, and that key change kind of heightens the emotional stakes of the song. Or maybe I'm analyzing Cisco's music too much. Anyways, though, if you enjoyed this modulation, you experience something called a positive prediction error. You probably made an incorrect prediction that the song was going to stay in the same key, but if you liked it, you got a hit of dopamine. It's like a bonus reward that was unexpectedly interesting and cool musically. Alright, but what if you didn't like the key change? What if your incorrect prediction did not result in a satisfying aesthetic experience for you? Well, your brain is still making note of that and refining your prediction so that the next time you hear that song, even if you don't like it, at least it won't be a surprise. Um, Your prediction will be right even if you don't love the music itself. In summary, music listening can be so pleasurable because music exploits our brain's fundamental tendency to make predictions, which we can learn from and reap rewards from when our expectations are either violated or proven correct. One of the seminal foundational studies that first empirically demonstrated activation of the dopaminergic reward system when people listen to their favorite music was a study done back in 2001 by Anne Blood and Robert Zatore. Seriously, this study is legendary in the music psychology world. Like, everyone's read it. It's been cited a ton of times. On Google Scholar, this paper has been cited by other researchers over 2,400 times. That is astronomical in the science world. So because it's such a foundational paper, even though this paper is an oldie, it's still a goodie. To study musical rewards associated with music listening, Blood and Satori examined one of the most pleasurable music listening responses, musical chills, which are also known as frisson, I think. It's like a French pronunciation. It looks like frisson, almost frisson. 
This is a relatively rare response to music listening in which people experience literal shivers down their spine when they hear their favorite music. And these musical passages that often evoke frisson or chills, um, it's often loud or these often include musically or emotionally intense musical passages. Personally, I've never experienced chills to music myself. I actually thought people who said they got chills or goosebumps when they were listening to music, um, I thought they were using it as a figure of speech, but people actually get those physical sensations, which is pretty cool. I wish I could experience it myself. In Blood and Zatori's experiment, they recruited 10 participants, 5 male, 5 female, between the ages of 20 and 30, who all said they reliably experienced musical chills when listening to a specific piece of music um, that was individual to them. All the participants received PET scans while listening to four auditory conditions. Number one was their own selected music that was supposed to induce the chills response. The second was another participant's selected music, so this was like a control music condition. The third auditory condition was noise, and finally the fourth was silence. During these PET scans, each participant's physical responses were also being measured, so things like their heart rate, their respiration rate, and after each of the four auditory conditions, participants verbally rated their emotional reactions to what they heard on a scale from 0 to 10 for the intensity of the chills they experienced, the emotional intensity of the auditory stimulus, and how unpleasant or pleasant the auditory stimulus was on a scale from negative 5 up to positive 5. Results found that participants experienced chills in 77% of the scans when the music they selected personally was played. So the participants also said that their chills response felt like it was in response to the music itself, not in response to memories or other extra musical personal associations that they had with the music. Participants' heart rates um, and respiration also increased significantly during the highest rated chills music when compared to the control condition music. So there is some kind of physical response that was accompanying the subjective chills ratings. The verbal ratings of each participant's selected music was also highest for emotional intensity and pleasantness compared to their ratings of the chills intensity. So Blood and Zatori thought this may mean that chills won't happen unless the music is already perceived to be emotionally intense and pleasurable in the first place. But the big finding that this study is known for is that the PET scans showed that when listening to their own chills producing music, participants' brains were more likely, significantly more likely, to show blood flow to brain areas associated with reward circuitry. These included the left ventral striatum, the dorsal medial midbrain, bilateral insula, right orbitofrontal cortex, and the anterior cingulate cortex. All of these brain structures are associated with reward and positive emotions. They release dopamine. Dopamine is the neurotransmitter common to all of these areas, which again can motivate behavior. And this study, because it was one of the very first studies to use neuroimaging to make this connection between dopamine, the reward systems in the brain, and these highly pleasurable music experiences, this may be one of the reasons why I hear the oversimplification that music releases dopamine. 
But as we've learned so far, dopamine does not always equate to that feeling of sensory pleasure and liking and enjoyment of something. Sometimes dopamine just indicates to our brain that we're making a good job of making progress towards a goal. Sometimes it's the reward for reaching the goal. I do want to make another subtle point here. That good feeling that we get when we get these musical rewards is not the only way that music can bring us pleasure. Music can also contribute to these feelings of enjoyment and sensory pleasure because listening can also release other neurotransmitters that can better explain those more hedonic feelings, I guess, that also may be happening at the same time when we achieve a goal. So some researchers think that... um, these like feelings of pleasure are better attributed to neurotransmitters like endorphins, which are often called the body's natural opiates. And the fulfillment of a goal is not the only way that music can make us feel good. There are lots of ways that music can induce positive emotional states when we hear it, depending on what other associations the music can bring up. So if you do want to learn more about that, I'm going to point you in the direction of the very first episode of season one um, about music and emotion induction, where I talk at length about six mechanisms by which music induces different emotional states in us, positive and negative. So go check it out if you haven't already. Understanding how music can be interpreted as a reward in the brain has major implications for music therapists, such as myself. The fact that music is a rewarding experience is actually a foundational mechanism that helps me explain why music therapy works. And I don't know if you've ever been a client of therapy yourself. And I'm not just talking like psychotherapy, although that's often a common therapy that people take part in. Um, But there's other, you know, like physical therapy. Maybe you got an injury and you needed physical therapy for a few weeks. Or maybe you had a learning disability and got speech or occupational therapy in school. I've worked as a music therapist in a lot of settings like medical hospitals and memory care and neurorehabilitation, and I just want to state for the record that if you're in therapy, you are doing work. Maybe it's emotional and personal work in psychotherapy. Maybe you are working your muscles to build strength and endurance. Whatever it is, therapeutic clients are taking part in a process that often makes them uncomfortable for a purpose. Of course, it's all for the client's long-term health, but therapy is not always fun. I know from my own personal experience. I was in a pretty serious car accident as a kid myself, and one of my lungs was partially collapsed. And I remember that when I was in the hospital, a respiratory therapist came in, and in order to build up my lung strength and endurance, she had me blow into this tube to make this like little ball, like a ping pong ball, float into this plastic thingy, and it was a way to measure how my lung capacity was growing. Of course, the first time I did it, um, I could only keep the ball floating for like half a second or maybe a few seconds. It felt really hard, but I kept going at it because it was like this novelty game of making the ball float up. 
But once that novelty wore off, my parents had to keep nagging me to keep practicing my breathing so that I could get my lung capacity up so that it showed that I was healed to a certain extent and could go home. It wasn't fun, though. It was tiring. I would fight my parents when the nurses weren't in the room. But would second grade Bria have fought a little less and practiced those breathing exercises more if, let's say, I had a music therapist who swapped out the floating ball tube thingy for a harmonica? Maybe by nesting the same breathing exercises into harmonica lessons where I could learn to play familiar songs, maybe that would have been more motivating and fun while also getting my breathing patterns to be stronger. That's one of the coolest aspects about being a music therapist to me. Part of my job is to pair the act of making or experiencing music with a practical behavior that a client needs to work on. By translating a therapeutic activity that might be really effortful in one iteration into a musical activity, the intervention can transform and take on a more positive, motivating tone. From my experience of being a medical patient and being just around therapeutic settings across my career, I just want to drive home the point that many times going to a therapy session of any kind can be demanding, and after a while, some patients may lose motivation to do their therapeutic exercises. So I'm kind of bringing out a soapbox here, so bear with me. But the fact that music can be rewarding has huge implications for music therapy. For some clients that haven't made progress with other therapies, the rewarding nature of music can keep people motivated to stay engaged and put forth effort into therapy. It's not uncommon for me to get a comment like during a session or after a session from a client's family member or another staff member. They often say things like, wow, you guys are having so much fun. I'm so jealous or I want to join in, Um, which is cool because we usually are having a lot of fun. And it's a great feeling to see my clients' hard work and joy get validated. But I'm not always sure if the commenter understands that music therapy is not just about having fun. It's And sometimes music therapy is not fun. Sometimes music therapy sessions can bring up big feelings and challenging experiences. The point of music therapy is not strictly recreational or to make people happy or to have fun, but having fun can be a fabulous bonus to the therapeutic work that we're doing in the session. We can also look at the role of musical rewards for therapy from a neuroplasticity perspective. Musical rewards for non-musical behaviors might even help some clients reach their goals more efficiently. Elizabeth Stegemuller is a neuroscientist and a music therapist who put forward a neuroplasticity model of music therapy, and she talks about how music's ability to activate the same regions of your brain that produce dopamine, those same dopaminergic regions that are involved in reward-seeking behavior, may also facilitate neuroplasticity when paired with music. I'm also realizing this episode has a lot of terminology in it, so really quickly, neuroplasticity refers to the brain's ability to reorganize itself by creating or pruning away neural connections, and these changes in neural connectivity happen depending on the behaviors the person does or factors in the individual's environment. So that's neuroplasticity in a nutshell. When a music therapy client is trying to learn a new behavior, music provides lots of learning opportunities that support neuroplasticity. 
Let's say I'm working with a child who has a speech impediment and we are trying to practice vowel sounds. To demonstrate how the vowel sounds can piggyback onto music, I'm going to do an instrumental first and sing one of the musical examples while playing ukulele. To practice vowel sounds with kids, I'll often use a song called Apples and Bananas, which goes like this. I like to eat, eat, eat apples and bananas. I like to eat, eat, eat apples and bananas. And then once we sing the regular version, we can substitute in different vowel sounds that we're trying to target by putting that vowel sound into the lyrics. Like if we're trying to practice the hard A sound, the verse would turn into... I like to eat, eat, eat apples and bananas. Or if we're trying to work on a hard O vowel, the song would be I like to oat, oat, oat opals and bananas. Alright, you get the idea, right? When those vowel sounds the client needs to practice get mapped onto a song that the client enjoys listening to and is motivated to sing along with, that dopamine is going to get released and both the music and the behavior of singing the vowel gets interpreted as a positive rewarding event. Those dopaminergic neurons are firing away, they are getting wired together, and the non-musical behavior gets learned more fully and permanently by piggybacking off the music that's happening concurrently. The music is reinforcing the client's learning and hard work, and eventually the dopamine firing from the musical reward could transfer to the non-musical behavior of making the vowel sounds. Then, even when the client's music therapist is not around, the client is still able to continue producing those vowel sounds. They're getting that dopamine reinforcement, even if the music isn't happening alongside the vowels when the client is speaking and communicating with others. I love my job. Yay. I'm in the right career. But music therapy clients are not the only ones who can benefit from musical rewards. With what we've learned in this episode, you can definitely take advantage of music's motivational qualities, and you probably already pair music you like with things that you don't like doing as much, like putting on upbeat music while you're doing chores, like doing dishes or cleaning up your room. It can be especially effective to pair some aspect of the action you're doing with a part of the musical structure. Throughout history, there are tons of examples of music being used to help people stay on task, like with work songs, some of which have entered into our popular music repertoire. Harry Belafonte's famous rendition of the Banana Boat song is actually a Jamaican folk song that describes dock workers lifting heavy loads through the night. It's thought that the original lyrics were improvised as a way for the workers slash singers to express themselves while at the same time keeping on track and pacing the work that they were doing. 
Again, so using the motivational qualities of the music to help them accomplish a task. I think this can also give us an interesting perspective to understanding the music that we prefer to listen to and also the music that we don't really care to listen to. Speaking for myself, I don't really find myself listening to jazz music a lot, but after researching this episode, I'm wondering now if part of my indifference to jazz music is because, I don't know, it's more of an acquired taste. It takes a little bit longer to learn the harmonic and improvisation structures. I'm sure if I took more time to listen to jazz and learn that whole musical vocabulary, um, you know, I'd start to pick up on it in live performances, which might help me make better musical predictions, which might lead me to enjoying the music more. Who knows? But it's interesting to reevaluate our own musical preferences with what we learned about musical awards today in mind. So this brings us to the end of our finale episode about musical rewards. In a nutshell, yes, music listening does release dopamine, which is a chemical by which our brains tell us that we're making progress towards a goal or rewards us when we achieve that goal. And when we pair music with other non-musical behaviors, music has a really strong potential to motivate that behavior to keep happening, which can lead to more permanent neuroplasticity. And this is all a major mechanism for changes that are seen in clinical music therapy practice. We made it to the end of the episode. We made it to the end of season one. That's amazing. Thank you so much for coming along on this journey with me, whether you've listened to every episode or if you're just listening to this for the first time. All right, we're going to take off until fall, take some time to regroup, try out some new formats, like maybe some interviews, who knows what's coming up. Until then, please keep spreading the good word about instrumental, Um, that would be wonderful. As usual, check out this episode's show notes at our website, instrumentalpodcast.com, for research references, music information, and other resources mentioned. And I will see you again in the fall for season two of Instrumental. Thanks. Thanks.